Cells, a podcast about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am a PhD candidate in the Cell Molecular and Developmental Biology graduate program at the University of California, Riverside, and I will be your host for this web series. So the purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, and we're going to be using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. So every career has its highest prize, right? So athletes get Olympic gold medals, chefs get Michelin stars, actors get Oscars, musicians get Grammys, writers get Pulitzers, and scientists, well, scientists get Nobel Prizes. It is the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of human biology and ability to treat diseases. So today, we will be examining the very first Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to Emil von Behring in 1901. The Nobel Committee chose to give Behring the first award, quote, for his work on serum therapy, especially its application against diphtheria, unquote. We will be talking first about diphtheria disease, then what serum therapy is, how Bering used serum therapy to treat diphtheria, and at the end we'll talk about how serum therapy is currently being used in the ongoing SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus pandemic. So first, a little bit about Emil von Bering, the recipient of the first Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. He was born in Poland in 1854 into a rather large family. He was one of 13 children. Phew, big. He graduated from the Army Medical College in Berlin and worked mostly as a military doctor until he gained a research position in Berlin in the 1880s. This was where he focused his attention on bacterial infections, particularly diphtheria. Now, lots of you listening might ask, what the heck is diphtheria? And that's not surprising. Cases of the disease are almost unheard of in the United States nowadays. But the disease, it's quite old. It was first described as early as ancient Greece. So diphtheria, it's an airborne bacterial disease. And the name diphtheria is Greek for leather. And this word was given to the disease because diphtheria patients develop a rather leathery patch at the back of their throats. Now, sporadic epidemics of the disease uh, continued globally throughout the centuries. A hundred years ago, even, as many as 15,000 deaths from diphtheria were occurring in the United States every year. Tragically, the majority of these deaths were in children under the age of five years old. There's an account from a doctor living in the Bay Area of California during a diphtheria epidemic there in the mid-1850s. It tells how the doctor rushed to the aid of a friend who, in the span of just a few short days, had lost three of his five daughters to the disease, and the other two were gravely ill. Could the doctor come at once? However, by the time the doctor arrived, there was little he could do. There wasn't anything known to be particularly effective against the disease, and one of the two remaining daughters also died to the disease. Cases like this prompted many scientists and physicians to look for effective treatments against the disease. Now, great advances were already taking place in understanding diphtheria by the time Bering came along. Two prominent scientists were driving the development of microbiology. Robert Koch in Germany, who would himself win a Nobel Prize, and Louis Pasteur in France. Koch and Pasteur had established research institutes devoted to understanding the world of microbiology, and they were making big discoveries. 
These two scientists were the major advocates of the germ theory of disease, the notion that microorganisms can be the causative agents of disease. An associate of Koch named Louisfleur had demonstrated that a rod-shaped bacteria was the causative agent of diphtheria. Scientists at the Pasteur Institute in France had made the even more remarkable discovery that diphtheria bacteria cause disease by producing a toxin. Now, how did they learn that? Well, they grew up a large amount of the diphtheria bacteria in liquid broths. They then filtered out the bacteria from the broth using a special filter. Think of like a coffee filter. Okay, so this filter has holes that are too small for the bacteria to pass through, but things smaller than the bacteria, like toxins, could pass easily through and be collected. When they injected this filtrate into animals, the animals developed diphtheria just as if they had been injected with the bacteria. So this was evidence for a toxin secreted by the bacteria that by itself was the causative agent of diphtheria disease. Now, toxins are the main cause of disease for many bacterial diseases, not just diphtheria, including diseases like tetanus and pertussis. Now, it had also been known that people who recovered from diphtheria disease were immune. That is to say, they were protected from getting the disease again. This immunity was seen not just in humans, but in animals when they got the disease as well. So, Bering, going into his research, knows three things. One, the disease is caused by bacteria. Two, the bacteria cause the disease by producing a toxin. And three, people and animals that have recovered from the disease are immune. So Bering took this information and used it to answer the question, how can we treat someone suffering from diphtheria disease? Now, even though Bering knew that people who had recovered from the disease are immune, he wasn't sure about the mechanism behind this immunity. And nobody knew, no scientist had figured out the mechanism behind this acquired immunity. Now, some people had suggested that cells were adapting in response to the microbe to prevent its growth. A lot of research had actually been done to describe how special blood cells could kill bacteria. However, Bering was able to show the acquired immunity, what we call immunological memory, was a feature of serum. Serum, what is serum? Serum is the liquid part of your blood. Blood is made up of cells and fluid, and the acellular part can be separated from the cellular part. And we call that non-cellular part your serum. So Bering showed that there was a non-cellular component in the blood that provided pathogen-specific immunity. So how did he do this? Well, he decided to work with an animal model. In science, this is very common. It's very common to experiment on animals, particularly because many of the experiments we do in animals uh, would be highly unethical if performed in humans. However, it's important that the animal model can replicate the disease one is studying. So humans are the, the only natural host to be infected with diphtheria bacteria, but it had also been demonstrated that injected diphtheria toxin can kill many different mammals, including mice, rabbits, guinea pigs, cats, dogs, sheep, horses, you know, your general farm animals. So Bering was working with rabbits. That was the animal model he decided to go with. And he was able to create rabbits immune to diphtheria. Bering then took serum from the immune rabbits 
and injected that serum into mice. Now, 24 hours after giving the mice the serum, he injected the mice with diphtheria bacteria. Now, all the mice that had been given the serum survived. All the mice that had not been given the serum all died within 48 hours after infection. Hmm, this is pretty cool. Bering decided to do this experiment again. He took regular rabbits not immune to diphtheria, took their serum, injected it into mice. Only mice that received the serum from the immune rabbits survived. Mice that were given serum from non-immune rabbits all died when injected with diphtheria toxin. So this is really cool. Bering had shown that there was something in the serum of immune animals that could be used to prevent the development of diphtheria disease. So Bering then used his mice to show that the serum could be used therapeutically. So Bering swapped the order. He first infected the mice with diphtheria bacteria, and then 48 hours later, injected them with the serum. And the result? All the mice survived again. Amazing. Bering published his results in 1890, and his experiments drew a great deal of attention. Many people, including Bering, were asking, could this technique dubbed serum therapy be used to treat people suffering from diphtheria? Now, before Bering could test whether serum therapy could effectively treat human patients, Bering had to address two other questions. First, how do you make enough serum available to treat a large number of patients? Rabbits aren't big enough to provide enough serum to treat hundreds of thousands of patients. And two, is the serum safe to give to humans? Now, in modern drug development, we call that first question scalability. Can we easily manufacture a lot of the drug? For Bering, getting more of his serum meant scaling up to a larger animal. So he went with sheep and later scaled up even more to horses. So after showing that the sheep serum could be used therapeutically to treat guinea pigs infected with diphtheria bacteria, the human experiments were ready to begin. So the first human trial of serum therapy was carried out at the Koch Institute in Berlin, where Bering worked, in 1893. So a key feature of this trial was to check if the serum was safe to use. All new therapies, even today, must pass this check. If your cure is worse than the disease, then it is not going to be approved for use. So in Bering's trial, 11 children sick with diphtheria were treated with serum, and no adverse side effects were observed, meaning the serum, well, it was safe to use. Now, in terms of the serum's effectiveness, 9 out of 11 children recovered from the disease while 2 died. Now, although the treatment didn't cure all the children, the normal death rate of diphtheria among patients admitted to the hospital was 65%. So having a therapy that worked in 9 out of 11 children was a huge improvement. So another trial was performed the following year at a children's hospital, this time in parents. Much bigger trial this time, almost 500 diphtheria patients are used. Of those patients, 25% of those that got the serum died. A huge improvement over the hospital's normal fatality rate of 51%. So people got really excited. The procedure for serum therapy spread around Europe to the United States as well. And the result was an unprecedented reduction in childhood mortality. It was estimated that during the first decade of the 20th century, 45,000 lives were saved each year in Germany alone because of the serum therapy against diphtheria. 
It's not surprising, therefore, that in 1901, Bering was selected to be the first recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. So where are we at now with serum therapy? Well, we know a lot more than Bering did. For starters, we know more about how diphtheria kills its victims. So the main cause of disease from infection with diphtheria bacteria is that toxin secreted by the bacteria. This toxin binds to the surface of cells and enters the cytoplasm. Once inside the cells, the toxin blocks protein synthesis. A cell that can't make protein is a dead cell. So this toxin results in cell death, swelling, inflammation, and organ failure. Now, Bering had no idea what was in the serum that was responsible for preventing this outcome. He called it an antitoxin, but nowadays we know that the serum from the immune animals contained antibodies that bound and neutralized the diphtheria toxin. So antibodies, what are they? Antibodies are super special molecules that are produced when your body encounters a foreign pathogen. Antibodies, they're a part of your immune system. They bind very specifically and very strongly to molecules made by the foreign pathogen to block their function. They also alert the immune system to the presence of a foreign molecule that should not be there. So the animals that Bering had immunized secreted these antibodies into their serum, and when Bering transferred the serum, he transferred the antibodies. The antibodies were then able to bind to the toxin in the sick patient and prevent the toxin from binding to the cells, thus preventing the disease from progressing. So this is really cool. This therapy that Bering developed, super awesome, but it has a few drawbacks. So the first is a condition called serum sickness, where some people have allergic reactions to the animal proteins in the serum, which sometimes includes the antibodies themselves. The second drawback is that the antibodies had to be given early enough into the disease to prevent irreversible cell damage. So given too late, the antibodies were not going to be enough to save the patient. Third drawback was the antibodies didn't last very long. So the antibodies, after a few months, are gradually degraded, and the person who has been given the serum therapy is once again susceptible to infection. So although Bering was able to use his serum prophylactically to prevent infection in mice, we don't do that nowadays. We don't use serum therapy as a long-term strategy to protect against infections in humans. Instead of serum therapy, we use vaccines. Vaccines are capable of providing that long-term protection against disease that serum therapy cannot provide. Bering himself made a vaccine for diphtheria by mixing his serum therapy with the diphtheria toxin and injecting it into people, and it actually worked. But it had to be formulated correctly. The danger was that if it wasn't formulated correctly, the antibodies could be dissociated from the toxin and that could potentially make somebody sick. Not a very good vaccine. Also, it was costly to produce all that serum for the vaccine, and maintaining all those farm animals was also a lot of work. Now, a breakthrough came in the 1920s, when researchers created diphtheria toxoid. Toxoid, new word here. A toxoid is a chemically inactivated version of a toxin that is still immunogenic. So what researchers did was they took the diphtheria toxin and treated it with the chemical formalin. 
This chemically modified version of the toxin is no longer able to bind to the cells and cause disease, but can still be recognized by the immune system for the production of those neutralizing antibodies. This technique for toxoid production was applied to other toxins as well, including the tetanus toxin and the pertussis toxin, and a single vaccine that combined all three, often called the Tdap or DTaP vaccine, was introduced in the 1940s. This was a highly effective and easy to produce vaccine, and it's still around in use today. Vaccinations against diphtheria with this vaccine have reduced the number of diphtheria cases in the United States by 99.9%. There has only been five reported cases of diphtheria in the U.S. since the year 2000. Amazing. What a triumph. Now, the success of the toxoid vaccine and the development of antibiotics meant that serum therapy sort of fell out of practice, although the CDC still keeps a herd of immunized horses, you know, just in case. Recently, however, serum therapy has been brought back due to the current COVID-19 pandemic. So let's talk a minute about serum therapy and COVID-19. So in the absence of any effective antivirals or a vaccine against the virus, serum therapy is a tried and true method for combating SARS-CoV-2. COVID-19 patients who have recovered from the disease have antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus circulating in their serum, and many of these patients have been donating serum to be given to patients who are currently suffering from COVID-19. However, serum therapy for COVID-19 has some of those same drawbacks as it did for diphtheria when Bering first developed the technique over 100 years ago. So the therapy, first of all, is most effective if given early, particularly in the case of COVID-19. In COVID-19, the later part of the disease is driven by an excessive immune response to the virus. And by the time most people get intubated, they've already cleared the virus. So serum therapy probably won't help those people who are already far along in COVID-19, but could be effective if given early. Secondly, safety is still a concern. This therapy is old, it's been used a lot, and it's been shown to be effective against many different diseases, but we have never used this particular treatment with this particular disease. There's still a lot we don't know about COVID-19, so we want to monitor those people getting serum therapy to make sure that it is safe and that we don't do more harm than good. Additionally, there's still that scalability issue. So a person who's recovered from COVID-19 can donate enough serum at a time to give to maybe three people, which isn't a lot. So people are interested in scaling up to larger animals the way Bering did. This is where things get really cool, though. So scientists have immunized cows against SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, so they can use the cow serum for serum therapy. But these aren't just any cows. These are humanized cows. Now, I'm not sure what goes through your mind when you hear the words humanized cows, but these aren't the cows you see on the Chick-fil-A billboards or anything like that. These cows have been genetically engineered to produce human antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. Normally, cows make cow antibodies, but these genetically modified cows make human antibodies. These human antibodies from the cows won't cause an allergic reaction when injected into the patient, and they can also help recruit other immune cells to help clear the virus. So these cows, they get you all the benefits of using human antibodies, plus all the benefits of large-scale production you don't get from recovered COVID-19 patients. Really cool. 
Now, clinical trials with the Cal serum is currently underway, and I hope they will prove an effective tool we can use until we find an effective vaccine. So that concludes this first episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on September 4th, 2020. I want to thank Paul Preston for helping with the editing for this episode and Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. Next time, the Nobel laureate we will be discussing described his discovery with the following poem. So here goes, excuse me, quote, This day relenting God hath placed within my hand a wondrous thing, and God be praised at his command. Seeking his secret deeds with tears and toiling breath, I find thy cunning seeds, O million murdering death. I know this little thing a myriad of men will save, O death, where is thy sting, thy victory, O grave. Unquote. So what was this wondrous thing he had discovered? Well, tune in next time to find out. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you then.